2: We still don't get paid
0: what
3: I believe we're worth.
1: I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching.
3: Women have
4: been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether
0: or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands.
4: Now
3: I'm a
1: health coach.
3: My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 3. To sell ourselves is female. Okay, so at the beginning, I was
2: just writing... <laughs> this is a sentence in my
3: head. At the beginning, I was just writing to help people. Meet Stephanie Ruper, the creator of Paleo for Women, host of the Well-Fed Women podcast, and author of Sexy by Nature. Um, I very much
2: believed that people just, like needed to know and deserved to know the stuff that I was saying. And I went to AHS, the Ancestral Health Symposium, which then was the only, you know, paleo meeting on the block. In August of that year, just like four months after I had started, started my blog, three months, um, I was fortunate enough to have come on
3: Diane's radar before then. Here, Stephanie's referring to Diane Sanfilippo, author of Practical Paleo and the 21-Day Sugar Detox. And so I went to AHS
2: and I was sort of like in the you know in the no I was I was allowed into the circle um and I had a lot of very productive conversations there with people who had been doing this as a career and the most common thing everybody there said to me was Steph you have to monetize Steph you have to monetize and I was like no no and I I like that's all that's the conversation I had all weekend was me saying people just deserve to know and other people telling me, look, like, you're creating value, you're spending your energy creating value to give to people, and it's not unethical for you to ask them for some kind of payment in return. And you can also make it such that this was, there were a couple things that were really important to me. One, uh, someone told me that um, you need to remember that people invest emotionally in things in which they invest financially. And so if you ask them to invest and also they want to spend money, he was always telling me, people want to spend money. Um, so if you ask for financial investment, you might, there might be a better chance that you'll actually be able to help people.
3: I met Stephanie Rupert in 2012 after I became a super fan of her blog. She was writing about the things that mattered to me, eating disorder recovery, healing polycystic ovarian syndrome and secondary amenorrhea, which means no longer getting your regular menses when you're not yet in menopause, and more. All while following a paleo diet. Steph represented a model of the perfect career. She was studying to become an academic. She was writing books. She got to think about food and exercise and health all day. And most important, she was helping people and getting paid for it. I first discovered Steph in the health coaching world around the time when I was fully immersing myself in the workforce. I was commuting two hours each way for work and working from 5 or 6 a.m. until almost midnight for less than the cost of living. And worse, there was no payoff for the work I was doing. I was helping a CEO get richer, sure, and I was engaging in the exciting work of getting a startup off the ground. But other than that, I didn't feel like I was making much of an impact with my career. So I started blogging about eating disorder recovery, exercise addiction, and the paleo diet. And all of a sudden, other women started reaching out to me. My little unpaid blog was making a difference in people's emotional and physical health. Whereas my stressful, underpaid corporate job was wasting fuel, time, and creative energy while making someone rich even richer. That's when I decided it was time to do the thing I saw others on the internet, like Stephanie Ruper, successfully doing. It was time for me to sell myself. Because it seemed like I was the product that people wanted. Over the past several years, I've wondered why I was so eager to find something to sell, and why the product that I became most excited about was my own brand. I reached out to Daniel Pink, who is an expert in the business world on sales and motivation. He's the author of several New York Times bestselling books, but I wanted to speak with him specifically about the one that stood out to me: "To Sell Is Human." And I asked him, "Is it really human to sell?"
5: Yeah, well, that's a great. I mean, I think it's a great question. Um, you, you know, there are, different, there are different levels that there are different levels of that. I, I, I mean, one of them is that in a business setting, we want to sell stuff because that's how we survive. Right. That's uh, the bit the and most base. Uh, answer to that question. But I, I think at another level, we want to sell stuff because we believe in something and we want to make a difference. Um, mm. And I think that's the most exalted uh, a version of it. And uh, and for most of us, um, our efforts fall somewhere on that spectrum between yeah. this kind of uh, noble, uh, I believe in something so deeply, I need to tell others about it and convince them because that's going to make the world a better place, mm. to uh, I need to sell this um, uh, Toyota Prius this this month or else I'm going to get fired and not pay my mortgage. Right. So, <laughs> you know, and so all of us live on one, you know, spectrum, you know, one a part of it, some part of the spectrum. And we don't stay on that part of the spectrum all of the time. So it's like in a given day, a given week, a given year, we're moving across it.
3: It's true. In a capitalist system, we sell to survive. You can't barter your way to a new iPhone any easier than you can for food or shelter. But the Internet, specifically coaching, taught me that the most noble way to make money was to be inspiring, to help other people. And at this particular point in history, the people who are best at inspiring seem to be the ones who also sell the most. So do you think, in a way, to to sell is human? Like, I know that it's a clever title and and that's sort of the thrust of the book, but is that is it the system that we live in, or is it just something that, as humans, we just want to do? Does
5: that does that make I, sense? I, I, yes, absolutely. And I, I think it's something that, as humans, that we 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 do want to do. I, I you know, and it's something that we do. That's the mo- I mean, that in some ways is the most important thing. That yeah, you, know, you know, for this batch of research, um, I, I I did some surveys, uh, big sample of, of workers in the U.S., and I found that you know people are spending on the job a huge portion of their time in this thing that's kind of sort of like sales. They're persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling. Mm -hmm. They are sitting in a meeting and they're trying to get someone to see things their way. They are trying to get someone to come and work on their team rather than another team. They are trying to convince their boss to not do something stupid, or they are a (laughs) boss and they're trying to convince their employees to do something different or do something in a different way. And if if you look actually at the content Mm -hmm. of what people do on the job, a huge portion of it is this thing that's kind of sort of like Selling. I mean, it's, it's something that in some level, it's, it's, a, it's a hugely important component of what we do for a living, even beyond simply selling a product or service.
3: So as humans, we're used to non-sales selling, as Dan calls it. And with the rise of the Internet, we've gotten used to using these skills on a consistent and even constant basis. So one of the things that you said in the book, and again, this was you know, not written recently, right? Um, but yeah, it's you, about,
5: hey, I wrote this book about five years ago. Yeah. Right?
3: And so the pace of the Internet especially has really, really picked up just in that fi- in that five year period is insane. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the technologies that were supposed to make salespeople obsolete, in fact, have transformed more people into sellers, which yeah. is an incredible statement. But also when you look around, like, for example, my entire Facebook feed, I don't know if there's anybody who isn't selling something on Uh, Facebook. uh, And uh. it doesn't necessarily have to be a link to their Etsy store or to their um, group coaching program. People are selling everything from their events, trying to sell um, a little bit of their personal brand, getting people to like them, getting people to comment or share that in its way. In its own way, rather, is a sale in and of itself, um, and I'm wondering kind of what your thoughts are in terms of how just that statement has transformed in the past five years since you've written the book.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the, the the deep changes started before that, but certainly they've they those changes have deepened and accelerated. So if you just look at what if you just look at what you do, I mean, you're an online marketer like that was not a thing 20 years ago, okay, and so. You know, so uh, and, and you know, and you're like all of us. You're you're selling too, and so the the idea that we have these platforms, whether as you say it's an Etsy or something else, turns more of us, more of us into sellers. Now, it also has you know the online world also has a profound effect on a profound effect on selling and persuasion and influence of of every kind, more, but more broadly because it's you know it's 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 it's, it's it basically remade the entire terrain of persuasion and influence and used to be we used to live in this world of information asymmetry where sellers always had more information than buyers now we live in this world of something close to information parity and that i just can't even I, I can't say strongly enough what a big deal that is i mean just think about it in historical in a historical context for a second so just think about like all of the all of commerce in human civilization go all the way back So, you know, the very first commercial transaction might have been some some dude selling a goat to somebody for shells. All right. So the guy the guy selling the goat at that time knew a lot more about goats in general and that goat in particular than the person buying it. Okay, that's information asymmetry. And that persisted throughout human civilization. You know, you know, not you know, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, uh, uh, Renaissance, Enlightenment, uh, Industrial Revolution, you know, into our own lifetimes, it, like basically the entire 20th century. And then like a few years into the 21st century, all of a sudden, this information asymmetry that defined what sales was disappears and becomes something closer to information parity. And there, there, that is profound on at least two dimensions. It's profound in the sense that it is, it has it basically disrupted, I hate that word, but it's basically, you know, but you know what I mean? It disrupted, essentially, thousands and thousands of years of how we believe the world works. Okay, that's a big deal. And I think part of that is that we haven't quite realized how significant that is. And then when you look at any form of persuasion, influence or selling, it's monumental. So this is a huge deal when it comes to persuasion. You know, we've gone from this world of information asymmetry, which, as I said, is is a world of we can think of as a world of buyer beware. Buyers have to beware when sellers have all the information. But now when both sides have the information, I think more and more in every realm, every facet of sales, persuasion, influence, we are in a world of seller beware. Now the sellers are on
3: notice. All right, so why is this relevant to our discussion here on the podcast? As Dan mentioned, in the past, people had to rely on salespeople to give them the information they didn't have. Today, however, because we're so inundated with information, and because the algorithms that determine which information we get are fine tuned to cater to our preconceived notions and biases, buyers feel like they already have all the information. What they care about is not necessarily what the information is, but who is giving us the information. In order to rise above the noise of social media algorithms, paid ads, and search engine optimization, people have had to change their tactics from making a hard sale to something that's a lot more subtle.
6: Well, the unmarketing itself started out, um, you know, could be almost 20 years ago, where uh, it was almost like going with your grain marketing instead of against it, which was what felt natural to you. And... It was created as an alternative to people pitching only cold calling and advertising and push messaging. So it was getting yourself in front of your target audience so when they have the need for your product or service, they choose you.
3: That's Scott Stratton, known on Twitter as At Unmarketing. He and his wife, Allison, are the authors of Unmarketing, Unselling, and their latest book, Unbranding. While they focus primarily on the branding of corporate entities, the lessons that Scott has learned and shares about in his talks also apply to the people who want to brand themselves online.
6: I hated all the classical techniques of it, and I thought there's got to be a world out there, there's got to be a crowd out there that thought the same way I did, which was interruption was not the best way always to to market. So uh, I picked the name because I thought it would look good on a book cover, Eventually. And um, if I do say so myself, I think it looks fantastic on a book cover. And that's kind of where the un thing started. For me, in my brain, first and foremost, it's always about hooks. I always have hooks. It's always about what can hook somebody. And, and, and a book or a company name or a talk name is like, okay, your goal of your title, the goal of the brand name is for people to say, you know, all right, I want to figure out more. I want to learn more. Like, what is that? And it piques curiosity, which I think most of marketing is.
3: So Scott mentions this interesting word, brand. It's in the title of the show, so obviously I think it's important. But what exactly is it? And why is it important? Well, historically, branding was a way of showing others what you owned. When you think of branding, think of cattle, right? Cattle are physically branded with someone's logo with a hot poker to help distinguish ownership. In the modern sense of the word, however, branding is less associated with ownership and more with consumption. Over time, people who had something to sell would put their brand or logo onto a box or sign or the packaging to give people reassurance about the quality of what and from whom they were purchasing. And as brands, logos, became signals about quality, they began to stand in for value. When you purchase from one brand over another, you make a statement about what kind of value you can afford, and as brands became even more ubiquitous parts of our lives, about how you could be valued in your own community. A brand distills a company's message into something that's easy to understand Marketers understand that in a world where the buyer has a choice, the seller must beware. And the seller better make damn sure that their message is clear and concise and easy to consume. Brand is by necessity reductive in order to make it easy for people to make a choice about what to buy. And that's all well and good when the person, in quotes, doing the advertising and marketing is a corporation. But what happens when a solo entrepreneur begins to think of themselves as a brand?
0: I mean, essentially, a brand is a story, and there's two components to it.
3: I spoke with Kelly Deals, who has branded herself a feminist marketing coach.
0: So one is, what are the values that you're trying to articulate? What's the story that you're trying to articulate to other people? You're trying to control the narrative, right? You're trying to put a particular story out about you and your work. And then the other element of brand is the sort of external in part, which is how do people perceive you? What's the story that they read on you? So those, so, and then a brand is like all the, the collateral that you disseminate that story in and you try to control the
3: narrative. In other words, branding is a way to reduce yourself to a version of yourself that's consumable. In business and economics, a corporation is defined as a fictitious legal entity separate from the people who own it. So, there's a literal legal delineation between the person who owns the business and the business itself. But health coaches and personal trainers and bloggers and Instagram influencers are very rarely corporations. That takes a lot of money and a lot of paperwork and would be completely unnecessary if all you wanted to do was sell ebooks about smoothies online. Legally, when you start a solo business, you become what's called a sole proprietor, which means that you are not actually separate from your business. You're liable for all of the things that your business is liable for. You can take out a fictitious business name to slightly separate yourself from the business in the eyes of the public, but in the eyes of the law, you and your business are one and the same. I find that to be a good metaphor for what I see happening when we begin to brand ourselves, to make our bodies, our calling cards, our logos, our value.
0: So I'm going to be real radical here, and I'm going to say all women are brands. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands, and that's a function of patriarchy. And what I mean by that is women are trained to present themselves as consumable objects. We're trained to control how we're perceived and constantly be sort of perimeter patrolling to see how we're being perceived and make sure we're being perceived in a palatable way because we know that we are saleable objects and we have to present ourselves to be consumable. So what I see in the intersection of online marketing and lifestyle marketing and this notion that women are brands is that we have to sort of turn the volume up on making ourselves saleable. But it's part of feminine conditioning to make yourself saleable so what we're doing now is professionalizing it and turning the volume up on it.
3: Right. And we're we're sort of legitimizing it by saying, well, but this makes you money, so dot dot dot.
0: Right. Well, I mean a lot of things make you money. Robbing a bank makes you money. It doesn't mean you go do it. <laughs> that is a very good point.
3: It's your job as an entrepreneur, as the keeper of the brand, to help people understand what to think about you in a concise way. We exist in this world where the noise of social media and blogging just keeps getting louder, and we need a shorthand in order to take in and process all of that information quickly. Best marketers, of course, have gotten that figured out. That shorthand is visual. It's a brand. It's a reliance on images to help us communicate our point quickly and easily. And in the world of social media marketing, where information comes in a flood and becomes disposable in seconds, it makes it even more imperative to use those images to press on people's emotional triggers and create quick associations to help us make our point and then sell.
7: The way I see a brand, it's um, at least for small businesses, it's the way that you're presenting yourself out there in the world. That's Lily
3: Garcia of Wild Olive Branding, whom we met in episode two.
7: All of us are these just beautiful, complex, deep individuals. Um, But when you're putting yourself out there in the world, um, trying to grow a business, that's not necessarily, that's a lot for somebody to take in and get behind. Um, So a brand is a way to kind of narrow things in so that the people who you're trying to reach can actually See you and um, and see why they need whatever you're offering um, rather than kind of getting lost in all the details of your life.
3: In other words, if you present yourself as more than your smoothie recipes or your marathon times, then Google won't know how to tell people about you when they search for blended drink recipe books or couch to 5K programs. And once people follow you, it's your job to continue to create the experience for your followers that they believe they've signed up for. Like Pepsi or Apple, when you are a company, you have to stay consistent with your image and your messaging if you want people to remember you have something to sell. But, at the same time, you're a real person and you're not a fictitious legal entity. You're more than a color palette or a sales page or a series of carefully staged photos. And there are consequences to not telling your audience the whole story, especially when that audience is vulnerable and receptive to your message. And that's exactly what happened to Tiana Dodson.
1: So I'm Tiana Dodson and I am a fat health coach. So originally I'm a mechanical engineer and uh, (laughs) that's a really big difference, right? but like, you know, I was married and thinking about a family and just like the lifestyle that I wanted as a person who was, you know, a member of a, a young family. I didn't want to have to balance um, kids and a career all of this time. It just seemed a little bit much that basically all Led up to the decision. Well, okay, what are you gonna do with yourself now? Because after three months of being Martha Stewart, I was bored. Mm. You know, I mean, I was I was bored. (laughs) I was bored to death. I was like, I can't DIY anything else. Um, this is uh, oh boy, this is getting much. So, like, I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Um, and that was because I saw a health coach, um, after I had gotten back from Germany, because of course, you know, I was going to lose the weight for good. Um, and she had the answers. So I thought, um, so yes. but what I found out was like, Oh, I really like this. She's working from home. She's got time to like go shopping at Whole Foods. Um, she's helping people. She's even, you know, able to like, work out when she wants to and go and roll in the grass and be happy she just seems so damn happy and I was like I want that you know so I decided hey um nutrition has ended up being like super super cool and like I want to work from home this is great let's try health coaching and so I did
3: in 1895, Gustave Le Bon published a book called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. It was one of the first in what would become a deluge of texts prescribing the application of this fairly new field of psychology to the manipulation of public opinion and the marketing of goods and services. Crowds, Le Bon wrote, have always undergone the influence of illusions. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. By illusions, he meant images. And by images, he meant public relations and advertising. He goes on to say, When studying the imagination of crowds, we see that it is particularly open to the impressions produced by images. A crowd thinks in images, and the image itself immediately calls up a series of other images having no logical connections to the first. Our own reason shows us the incoherence within these images, but a crowd is almost blind to this truth and confuses with the real event what the deforming action of its imagination has superimposed thereon. A crowd scarcely distinguishes between the subjective and the objective. It is the images evoked in its mind, though they often have only a very distant relation with observed fact. All right, put plainly, Le Bon was saying that images are a powerful way to manipulate people's emotions and resultant actions. While you may not think of yourself as the crowd, every single one of us, being human and subject to human psychology, is susceptible to persuasion. And especially susceptible to persuasion by images. While Le Bon believed he was just writing of the lower classes, assuming that he and his educated middle-class readers were above persuasion, he actually touched on something universal. Images matter and they are powerful, powerful tools of persuasion. As a result, Le Bon's writing would go on to influence the creation of the field of public relations, as well as help us shape our understanding of effective marketing psychology. By the 1920s, as the concept of public relations was being codified in books like Propaganda and Crystallizing Public Opinion by Edward Bernays, nephew of Sigmund Freud, the image came to be seen as a prime tool for marketing and advertising. In his book, PR, The History of Public Relations, media studies professor Stuart Ewan quotes Harry Overstreet from the New School for Social Research, who believed that images give marketers the power of selective emphasis and the power of suggestion. Overstreet says that these powers can induce an imagined experience in the mind of a viewer, a serviceable mental occurrence that could guide a person unconsciously towards certain desired conclusions or actions with the added benefit that the spectator will be unaware that he is even in the process of being persuaded. Professor Yuen sums up, the secret of all true persuasion is to induce the person to persuade himself. The chief task of the persuader is to induce the experience, the rest will take care of itself. And per Overstreet, the secret of it all is that a person is led to do what he overwhelmingly feels practice in getting people to feel themselves in situations is therefore the surest road to persuasiveness. Again, in other words, the job of the marketer is to make you see yourself reflected in their imagery, to help you feel like you belong. So when it comes time to make a sale, you're already sold. You just have to hand over the money. Whenever you like and follow a coach or a nutrition brand or a personal trainer or an athletics wear company, you've already bought in even if you haven't actually given them a single dollar. You've told them that the images they've used is selling a version of you to yourself that you already identify with or that you aspire to. Which is, I believe, why so many of us willingly hand over our money to anyone who looks the part of healthy or fit, and why so many of us turn to coaching or training or trying to start a blog and an Instagram as viable career choices. We see the Instagrams of coaches who look so happy and free and healthy, and we can't help but be seduced. And when we get an email from somebody we follow telling us how easy it is to start our own business just like them, or friends post an affiliate link to a health coaching program in an effort to grow their own income streams, which I admittedly have done in the past, we're already primed to want to buy. We've bought into the lifestyle. We're wearing the leggings, doing the workouts, or cooking the food. We too can have the life we've always wanted since the first time we saw it on Facebook. And now there is a way for us to fund it. We just have to literally become the brand.
8: You see these other people, and I know I'm one of them too, you know, because I know people like will see come to my website and obviously, like, that's my website. So I want it to look professional and polished. And, um, and, and so I think, you know, you, we just have this natural tendency to kind of see a person and then automatically think, oh, wow, they must be super successful, their lives must be perfect. And it must be so easy, like you just get the training, then people are going to come knocking on your door to work with you, then you're going to make lots of money and your life is going to be perfect. It's the same kind of magical thinking that diet culture instills in us. And I think that, you know, I kind of went down that, that that's what I initially thought, like when I wanted to become a nutritionist or become self-employed as a nutritionist, I just thought, OK, I'm going to get this training and then, you know, I'll just I've got my blog and then people are just going to come in and show up. And I didn't really think, oh, I'm going to have to spend a lot of the, my time you know marketing and selling my services <laughs> and, and you know and I and I think that, that that side of the equation I mean maybe it is being told out there but at least I didn't really hear that I didn't really hear from people how how hard it really is and a lot of the hardships that come in order to build up a successful a successful practice as as a solo um practitioner, whether it is being a nutritionist or a dietitian or a coach, like whatever, or yoga, like any kind of solo, um, solo endeavor comes with a lot of hardships. And you have to be selling yourself and your services. People don't just come knocking on your door. That's not how, that's not really how it works. You have to build it up. And it takes a long time to do that.
3: Summer Inanen, the body image coach whom we met in episode two, says something really interesting. You have to be selling yourself. In a world of seller beware where the customer already has the information, the real product isn't what you're selling. It's you. It's the story you're telling about why people should trust you enough to buy from you, which is why there is a push for you to not only become a brand, but an authentic one.
1: When I was working as an engineer, I was working for the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, which sounds really impressive. And so, you know, to dress it up, um, for those who might not know what that is, any of those words, um, I would, you know, make sure that I would write it out as Princeton University's Plasma Physics Laboratory, because the Plasma Physics Laboratory is a part of Princeton University, um. And, like, just kind of dress it up as much as possible to make it just fancy. And that would be, like, you know, my lead-in. I work for PPPL. Hi, I'm Tyana. I work for PPPL. You know, I was always just, you know, one of many, not, like, the thing. It was, I was always putting myself behind that shield. Um, and that was my pedigree. You know, that was my ticket into the door. Um And, like, as a health coach, I don't have that anymore. (laughs) You know, like, all I can be is who I am. Um, And there is no shield besides, you know, the ones that we tend to put up. Boundaries, you know, boundaries. Um, But, like, I don't have that fancy, well-known business card anymore. It's like, you know, I'm Tiana Dodson, and this is one beautiful yes. And people are like... Yeah, okay, that's that's great. You're you're a fat health coach. Uh, okay, what's that mean? You know, like mm, people were asking like plasma physics lab. What's that mean? Like, you know, with there was a like a like an enchantment like wow, plasma physics. You work for Princeton. Wow. As opposed to like, oh, you're a health coach. That's cool.
3: As Tiana says, all she can be is who she is. Health coaching really isn't defined by what type of diet you follow or which holistic remedies you're suggesting. It's defined by the person who is selling the coaching. It's defined by the coach themselves.
1: I didn't realize that I was becoming a brand. Um, I backed up into it. I didn't realize that's what was happening. Um, and, but like, when I hear people saying things like, this is my brand it always sounds so plastic. And just like, you know, this is my facade. This is the makeup that I put on. This is the filter that you see my life through. And for me, like, it's so important to be authentic. And I know everybody says this, right? Like, everybody's like, it's so important to be authentic, you know, as they take, 37 photos of the same thing to make it perfect um like i (laughs) i really try to be authentic like you're gonna see the bumps and you're gonna see the lumps and though i do spruce up my hair and make sure there's no crust on my face when i'm photos um you know i try not to do too much by way of like you know, trying to hide the double chin or the fact that there's laundry on the sofa. (laughs) Um, You know, I try to be as real as possible because for me, like, I guess that's my brand. My brand is the anti-plastic. I mean, my brand is, this is my life and um, it is what it is. (laughs) And it's pretty fucking awesome. But sometimes it's also pretty fucking messy. And like, that's, That is
3: what it is. One of the things that really struck me as I was recording this podcast was just how many people whom I interviewed wanted to talk about authenticity. Authenticity in digital marketing has become such an interesting and loaded and messy concept. And in many cases, it's a meaningless buzzword. We live in a post-Photoshop era where we all know that the images of perfection that have been marketed to us are fake. While we may still be psychologically primed to react when we see idealized images of people, I think a lot of us just yearn for something that feels more real, more more tangible, closer to us. And that's where authenticity comes in. In marketing, we have a concept called know, like, and trust. The idea is that the more you know, like, and trust a person, the more likely you'll be to purchase from them. Social media helps us get to know brands in a really unprecedented way. We've already gotten used to the idea of having friends who turn around and sell to us, and now we're even used to wanting to become friends with the people who are already selling to us. With platforms like Facebook and Instagram helping us to blur the line between our personal lives and our personal brands, we've entered an age where we really have to navigate this fine line between what is authentic and what is professional. And because in the health, nutrition, and fitness world, we use our personal struggles, stories, and habits as our marketing tools, we've actually begun to perform our humanity for one another for money.
1: All I can do is sell myself, you know, um, not, not an aspirational version of myself, but just who I am. Um, because for me to come to me and say, I want you to guide me, I want you to help me, I want you to hold my hand through this very, very volatile and tender process, I feel like you need to trust me. And I think that's the thing that maybe I've taken really to heart, this know, like, and trust thing that they try to tell you in marketing like people only buy from those they know like and trust and so it's been very important to me to when I'm when I'm writing or when I'm taking photos like to make sure that these things these representations are as real as possible so that you actually are getting to know me, Um, because as you get to know me, I hope you get to like me, and with those two things, I want to develop trust, and I feel like if I'm trying to make everything beautiful all the time, um, and performing, you know, a version of myself, then How can you really trust me? How can you really come to me and be vulnerable and open with me um, if I have not been open and vulnerable with you?
3: I want to introduce you to a concept called parasocial relationships. A parasocial relationship is a one-sided relationship in which one party is invested in the connection with the other, while the other party has pretty much no idea that the first party even exists. Let's take, for example, podcasts. Have you ever listened to a podcast and felt like you've gotten to know the host? You can hear the host. You can learn about their life. But the host themselves is just pushing media into the world, unaware of who's actually listening. You know, when I had my old podcast, Finding Our Hunger, I had people who would send me emails asking me about my dog or express condolences for the stressful week I had just talked about. And I had never met them before. The common refrain in those emails was, I feel like I already know you. Traditionally, you know, before podcasts, people have mostly formed parasocial relationships with celebrities, like Hollywood stars or famous athletes or TV personalities. Social media has acted like this great leveling tool, allowing ordinary people to achieve extraordinary and celebrity status within their niches and communities. Platforms like Facebook and Instagram prey on our tendency to form these parasocial relationships. They prey on our desire to connect with celebrity and to build community. And they give us a way to feel like we're actually, literally, friends with the people we follow. And becoming a friend is the ultimate marketing tool. Because as we've discussed, good marketing is built on the principles of know, like, and trust. The better I know you, like you, and trust you, the more likely I will be to buy something from you. And whom do you know, like, and trust more than your friends? That's why, as a coach, trainer, or blogger, you need a clear brand that's specifically built around your personality first and your offering second. You need people to want to follow you. The Institute for Integrative Nutrition is churning out health coaches. Anyone can sell you the advice you want to hear. Remember, there's information parity, as Dan called it. If you want the advice on keto or veganism or high-intensity interval workouts or beach body, it can be found. But only one person can sell advice your way. So what you're selling is not really advice. You're selling yourself first. But because you aren't a business, or at least not all of you, you also have to continue to represent your brand message to remind people that you have something to sell. Here's Allison Stratton of Unmarketing and Unbranding.
9: Well, that's that you you don't make friends so you can sell to people like that's the thing, right? Like, we talk a lot when we're talking to individual entrepreneurs, right? Or small companies. And we say like both of us would say we've connected with more amazing people online talking about music, talking about kids, talking about sports, talking about like these are the, football. Yeah, yeah. The, these are these are the things people connect over. They don't connect over buying your product. And so it, it's about positioning, right? Which is what Scott's talked about. It's OK for your the people you meet online to know that you're a realtor. It's okay for them to know you own a a software company or some kind of company. And if they trust you when they're seeking out that service, they're going to come to you and it's okay to provide helpful information. We've talked about blogs and all these different things you can do or a great app that helps people in your area, in your area of expertise. But that isn't the same thing as going online to make friends to sell to them, because that's not really making friends. People don't have dollar signs on their forehead with how much money they're worth to you. If that's what it is, you're not really there to make friends.
3: And that's the thing. I, I don't think most people, people like Tiana, like those of you who are listening to the podcast, actually go into health coaching because they see people with dollar signs on their heads. I believe they go into this field specifically because there is a true desire to help. And that's where authenticity comes in. We carefully cultivate our friends lists and curate our connections to create relationships while also carefully positioning ourselves as experts in whatever it is we're selling whenever we post, podcast, or private message. There's a certain amount of authenticity that just gets lost when the end goal of the relationship is to drive toward a sale, a referral, or some sort of transaction— no matter how much you truly believe in the friends you've made as a result of your marketing, there is an air of inauthenticity inherent in the relationship.
6: Yeah, you know. and what, one of the problems with authenticity too is it's it's gotten to the point of being inauthentic. You know, the inauthentic authenticity, which is trying like, to be authentic, trying to be like if it's, if authenticity is a is your marketing plan this quarter, it's not it's not a it's not a campaign, right? Being authentic and being being true or transparent is not like a a marketing tactic to me. You
9: don't don't try it out for like, you know, a quarter and see how it goes.
6: You either you are, you aren't. And I think that individuals can create connections and create friends, but brands, that's not their job. Brands is to be able to be providing a product or service for their customer base and, and be there when they need to be on the service side of things. And I think the problem is we've skewed it all the other, you know, to the other side.
3: Brands are not your friends, but friends are becoming brands, and that's where I'm worried. At the same time, there's a push to move away from using the word authentic even as we simultaneously position ourselves as real and build a professional brand out of our personal lives. I spoke with personal trainer Kelly Coffee of Strong Coffee, who feels pretty strongly about the word authenticity. I asked her why she doesn't like it.
10: Oh, God, because it's just so overused. I just, I hate... I hate, I hate marketing. I hate it. I hate the machine. You know, I actually am in the process of getting my website sort of cleaned up. And the guy that does my website, uh, you know, showed me a sample new homepage and, and the first word, like it was authentic. It was like authentic wellness for the real woman or something. And I immediately broke out in hives and I was like, get that word off of my website. No, you know, what's really funny, of course, is that, you know, arguably, I'm the most authentic wellness professional on, you know, in a lot of different spheres, like I'm an open book, I'm I'm there's nothing that I won't talk about. There's nothing that I'm not comfortable sharing. Like I am, I am all out there. And, 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 and still, like that word has it's just been co opted for money. It's you know you can you can go out I could I could walk out my front door right now and come home in an hour with an authentic t shirt an authentic you know cotton woven t shirt an authentic pair of fairly traded freaking shoes you know it's that word is on marketing flyers and banners and boxes all over my little New England town and if you can buy an authentic pair of shoes then you are not using the word authentic appropriately anymore.
3: One of the things that's difficult about the push towards authenticity in branding is that while we're performing our lives for one another, we also have to navigate what's appropriate in our performance. As our personal and professional brands merge, how much can you really share? And if you share something difficult or political or truly personal, will it ruin your profitability? And if you don't share those things, are you truly being authentic?
11: I don't I don't know how digital marketing can be authentic. It's it's a balance. It's something that I think we'll have to work on for
3: a while. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's it's hard. Um and I'm I'm struggling with this idea of authenticity online because I don't think it I don't think people really do want to see your authentic self at all. Um yeah. you know, like I feel like I've lost family members because of it. Um literally had to block people because they expressed distaste with the way that I was posting truth about my life Mm -hmm. and it was like well so what do you want to see you only want to see the happy shiny fake thing that I post to make you happy like what what how can I be myself online or be myself in general um and also make money is it possible like to keep connections when you're when you're being authentic about the things that you struggle with, and not the things that you're performing your struggle with, but literally struggling with.
11: <laughs> right, and that could be anything from like politics to mental health to mm-hmm. really anything. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's really I've seen that instances like that happen in the workplace a number of times over the last year. Whether it's someone who's dealing with a mental health struggle, and then it's like, well, so sorry, but you can't do that here. Mm-hmm. You know, like you should definitely take care of that, but not in front of these people kind of thing, or, you know, whether you have strong political beliefs and that comes out and mm-hmm. what can you do that in front of clients? Like what's the appropriate line and how do you, yeah, yeah I think that's a really tricky place to be. And mm-hmm. I agree. Most people don't want to see everything. And even I don't want to see everything from everyone, mm-hmm. but that's what you have friends for. Right. And I, and not everyone at, online is your friend. So There is a certain amount of authenticity, I think, can be showcased. If you can showcase authenticity, it's a weird combination of words. But I do believe that you can show people a slice of who you are Mm -hmm. without showing them
3: everything. But I believe that people using the Internet want to believe they're seeing everything. And they want to believe that they're friends with the people they follow. When a blogger shares their transformation story or an Instagrammer posts a picture of themselves crying after a panic attack, we want to know. We click, read, like, and share the stories that are filled with drama, struggle, and redemption. We long to find ourselves in these stories. We tag our friends. We repost and write our own version of the story. We film reaction videos. Stories are what drive marketing. And right now, authentic stories are a hot commodity. And stories about our bodies and about our health are really easy to come by. We have the tools and the encouragement to stage and perform and capture that authenticity and then sell it back to our followers on the internet. Here's Lily Garcia again. You know, I'm still kind of fighting this this internal battle between, like, I don't want to be a a brand in the sense that I'm not a business, right? I'm Mm -hmm. a person who has a business. But it's pretty clear at this point that I can't have a business if people see me as a person. Um, I mean, I can have a business, but it's not doing well.
7: (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's a really tricky balance. And, um, this is something that I'm figuring out right now too, because, um, just, I mean, just a couple of months ago, you know, that's, that's kind of what it was for me too. Like, well, you know, this is who I am. And so I'm going to put it out there and that's going to attract my people because of me as a person. Um, but just going through some, um, just, you know, personal tragedies has kind of changed that. And I realized, well, I want to have room for myself and my family, um, so that we can, heal and grow and and have space for that um and not necessarily have to do it so publicly and um you know i it's it's funny i started feeling this um this obligation to kind of live every part of my life on my instagram feed um and at the same time i was like well how does this relate to my business again and, <laughs> And so there, it's kind of this, this muddy um, thing that I'm, I'm trying to figure out for myself and, um, and trying to help my clients figure out for themselves, too.
3: One of the best ways on the Internet right now to build a following, to sell things, is to tell your own story, right? And I think that what happens is we start to mimic the people that we want to bring in and they start to mimic us as as purchasers, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm curious how you remain authentic when you're when you're telling these stories, when you're being a st- storyteller and trying to um, talk to your persona. If, say, the story that you're telling, maybe you've moved beyond. Right. Like this guy who's now written nine diet books. Is it, you know, like he's probably has to go through the same transformation story over and over and over again. This will mm. hopefully to help make my point because uh, I realize I'm getting into the weeds. But right. So he's telling the same story about I gained the weight. I lost the weight. I hated myself. I love myself, etc., yeah. which then mimics kind of what you want your audience to feel when they purchase or when they make their purchasing decision. Right. Um. But at some point it stops being authentic because either you really truly do have this belief that you're 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 bad, then you're good, then you're sad, then yeah, you're yeah, happy. Yeah
5: yeah, 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 yeah.
3: Or you're just mimicking what you want your audience to feel. Like mm-hmm. how do you how do you stay authentic?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. So I you're using mimic in a in a slightly different wor- way that I, you know, that, than I use it. But I, I see where you're I see where you're coming from. The um mm-hmm. you know, I think that the way you um maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm naive about this, (laughs) but I I think that people know when they're being inauthentic deep down, they know when they're being inauthentic and they know when they're being authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, I really think deep down people are generally know, know that. And the question then becomes, once you know that you're being inauthentic, Mm -hmm. are you willing to tolerate that feeling, that Mm -hmm. horrible feeling that I'm, that I'm not being authentic, that I'm bullshitting forgive me. And, oh, um, no, please. Okay. And so, so, you know, uh, and, and I think we know deep down when that is happening and we feel a certain way when that is happening mm-hmm. and it's an uncomfortable feeling. And the question is, how do you respond to that uncomfortable feeling? Mm-hmm. And I think that when we have that uncomfortable feeling, the way we respond to it is to say, you know what? I can do better than this. Mm-hmm. I can do better than this. That's not good enough. That's not how I roll. Yeah. And and I, I think that's what you have to do. And again, I think it's as we've been talking about, I think it is at this juncture of doing the right thing and being a good business person,
4: mm-hmm.
5: because yeah. that inauthenticity is not going to last for very long.
4: Yeah. You know,
5: um, and and so uh, the, the, I, so I really it really goes to the question of how do you reckon with that uncomfortable feeling. And if you say instead. this uncomfortable, it's not really an uncomfortable feeling. It's normal. Everybody does it. All right. Um, you know, it's not really an uncomfortable feeling It's sure it's an uncomfortable feeling, but I'm just going to endure it for another week or another month, <laughs> but another week becomes a month and another month becomes a year and another year becomes a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a moment of truth mm-hmm. where you experience that feeling and you have to decide what to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I think I don't want to say it's an easy choice, but we all know what the right thing is to do when we confront that moment of truth.
3: You know, Dan's right when it comes to people who know that they're selling bullshit, when they know that they're trying to deceive. But in this post-authentic world where we're literally being taught how to sell every time we log into Facebook, I don't think it's as easy as Dan makes it out to be anymore. Because the question isn't whether or not you're being authentic, but rather... What is that authenticity doing for you and the people you're selling to? What are the larger structures and systems that are driving that need to perform your life and your health for money? And how does believing in your own authenticity, even when you're carefully curating your online presence, speak to a larger social ill? I spoke with Sarah Benet Weiser, a professor and head of the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and author of Authentic TM, The Politics of Ambivalence in a Brand Culture, and Empowered, Popular Feminism and Popular Misogyny, to try to understand exactly what authenticity is when you're selling yourself online.
4: What is authenticity? I'm not particularly invested mm-hmm. um, in truth and um, in, in what authenticity is. Um, what I am interested in is how authenticity is performed um, and and in the different ways in which we invest as, as people, as citizens, as communities, in different definitions of authenticity. So what I tried to do in the book is, is think about how it is that authenticity itself is a brand mm-hmm. um, and what goes into that brand, what makes some, what, what convinces a public that, a a product or a community or a piece of art or activism is authentic and and you know what is it what is it that we think is inauthentic Mm -hmm.
3: so i guess well let's let's step back then so what what exactly is branding then what what is the purpose of a brand
4: well i mean it's it's been different throughout history and and um you know when I started writing authentic the book um i what I was noticing was that you know, I had studied advertising for many years. I taught uh, you know about you know interpreting advertising and and the different kind of you know um the messages that advertising sends to us. um but what I was noticing more and more was that um we had moved into an era where branding was about. A sort of affective relationship with consumers rather than an economic process it wasn't just convinced uh, you know branding is not about convincing someone necessarily to buy a product it is much more about a, a kind of more diffused cultural process not of commodification only but of um you know, appealing to a group of people or appealing to individual consumers through affective relations, something that you feel loyal to, something that you feel particularly invested in, something that you, you know, um, are, uh, are you know, uh, interested in or or enraged by in a particular way, something that, you know, garners an emotional reaction.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about parasocial relationships lately, um, specifically as it comes to marketing uh, online uh, and even podcasting. Right. And I think that a lot of that has to It goes into branding today, where we expect our audience to develop a relationship with us, even as, you know, we, we kind of like say, oh, I have a relationship with my my followers. I have a relationship with my listeners. I have a relationship with my list. Right. But we don't actually know who these people are, yet they feel this intense emotional connection to who we are as marketers, as sellers, as people who have something to offer, if that makes any sense.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, advertising has long been, you know, and I write about this in the book. It's long, you know, it it's basic premise is is what uh, historian TJ Jackson Lear's called a thera- a therapeutic ethos. It advertising sort of its goal is to make us feel bad about ourselves mm-hmm. and then to offer us a solution for feeling bad, right? So, you feel bad because you're aging, so here's a wrinkle cream. You feel mm-hmm. bad because you don't have um, a cool car, so somehow that's you know connected to your sexual life. So here's a cool <laughs> car. Um, right. You know, it's it's about making us feel bad, and and it's about offering a sort of therapeutic solution. Mm-hmm. Here we can make you feel better just by our product. Mm-hmm. Branding is slightly different. Branding is not about making us feel bad. It is about making us feel connected, mm-hmm. and it's about making us feel uh like we belong with a group um you know or in a group um and and even though lots of the processes of branding are the same as advertising it has a different kind of point of entry in terms of it, of how it establishes relationships with consumers mm-hmm. so like for example one of my it it's sort of a cheap exercise but it, <laughs> it actually works every time one of the things i do with my students um you know every time I teach about advertising and branding and 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 you know the kind of processes, the affective relations that it that it inspires, is I ask them, um uh I, I show them what arguably one of the most successful advertising campaigns um in history, which is Apple's Think Different. Mm-hmm. And I show them all, you know, from the from the Orwellian 1984 when the Mac first came out all the way up until the you know the posters of Amelia Earhart and Gandhi and John Lennon and you know think different and then I asked them in a in a in a you know auditorium filled with you know 150 students how many of you are using Macs mm-hmm. and 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 make them keep their hands up and look around and it's by far like 90% of the class and so I I do this to 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 you know kind of demonstrate to them we all buy into this thinking different we are cooler because we use Macs rather than pcs mm-hmm. but look all of us are doing the same thing right right and so it's interesting because now
3: people are beginning to basically create their own branding campaigns if you will and we are kind of performing this idea of thinking different or being different while expecting to create community around that if That makes sense? Uh Uh-huh, it does. (laughs) And so so, uh, one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of uh, women who are branding themselves online is that they are um, (laughs) – Well, so, okay, so I'll frame it this way. When I was really heavily into the um, I'm going to create my own business world, um, one of the things that business coaches always say is that it doesn't matter what you're selling. It just matters who's selling it. Um, Essentially, it doesn't matter if the niche is completely oversaturated as long as you're selling it differently because it's your personal, you know, it's your voice, it's your experience, it's your story, then it doesn't matter because you'll find your people. Right. And your people, right. of course, are your buyers, your followers, et cetera, economic and social capital. Um so what we're we're kind of training ourselves to do is to to be to find that auditorium full of 90% of people who think exactly the way we do. Um, and then figure out how to sell, oh, we're all different, um, together, I guess, to them. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I'm I'm wondering about, you know. What, and I, I don't know if there's really an answer, but like, how did this become the way that we now see um, we see purchasing the way that we see? I, I don't know how to better phrase this, <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense. No, but, I
4: mean, I yeah. mean, I think I, I mean, I guess, you know, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, too. I mean, I, I think about it, that that trajectory a lot in terms of my students. So, so, you know, noticing that my students went from coming to my, you know, office to ask me about career advice, you know, what should I do with my, um, you know, with my career, with, I, I teach in the field of communication mm-hmm. and media studies, what should I do with my bachelor's degree in communication? So it went from that, those kinds of conversations to how do I develop a self brand? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really different understanding of of who we are as people who go out into the workforce as citizens, as you know, as part of a community, and and I think that you know one of the things that happened that really ushered in the era of the self brand is it you know is digital media um, mm-hmm. and social media in particular, um, so that you start producing yourself. Um, and and composing yourself and curating yourself yep. online, whether that begins, you know, years ago with MySpace and then Facebook to Twitter to now Instagram and and Snapchat, and so that we are constantly curating this version of ourselves to perform mm-hmm. for others, right? And that process I found to be m- a lot of times really instrumental and really and really uh, about. Thinking of ourselves as commodities, as products, and I'm troubled by that because yes. once we start understanding and exchange and, and interacting with each other as if we were products, we become things. Yeah. Right. And so some of that, um, some of those affective relationships that we so cherish, end up being something that is about a commodity and a product rather than about you know uh, uh, kind of emotions or feelings or um, or, you know, just our kind of individuality.
3: Yeah. And then that, that also speaks a lot to feminism, right? So the whole concept, at least of, you know, today, I guess today's hyper-branded, you know, self-empowerment movement, whatever, you know, the whole point of feminism, at least in my understanding, was to have women not be considered objects, (laughs) right? Like we, we are equal humans. And now, and obviously that is a gross, uh, reductive view of feminism. But, you know, here we are, you know, standing on the other side of feminism as you know, and we're looking back and going, I would like to be an object now. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I would like to be a product. And there's something that is I mean, I, I guess the word gross keeps coming back into my head because it, it just, it is. It's It's—it's a complete bastardization of everything we've worked for. And yet, because we exist within a, a patriarchal capitalist system, we still have to kind of find where those values are. And the values of that kind of a system is money, is is commodity, is is creating some kind of power through uh, selling. And since the only thing that we... Uh, we can sell these days in in a really effective way, I guess, online is ourselves.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, I think the other part of it is, um, is that it, it's about objectification, for sure. But it's about a particular kind of objectification. Um, it, the, the other thing that happens along with this, that also ushers in, you know, that 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 is kind of Uh, Part of the ushering in of digital and social media is, of course, advanced capitalism or neoliberal capitalism, which is a um, a, a, an economic and political formation that values the individual over all else. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like relentlessly individualistic. It's about. You know, this is when we start to hear things like Mm self-entrepreneurship, the entrepreneur of the self. This is when the self-branding makes sense. It makes sense in this context of neoliberal capitalism, where it's not about community. It's not about um, a collectivity. It's about the individual. Mm -hmm. And so to, you know, circle back to your question about the kind of current state of what I call popular feminism. I just finished a book that is coming out in a couple of months Mm -hmm. about precisely this, about um, you know, kind of neoliberalism, media, a a culture of what I call, uh, you know, an economy of visibility, um, Mm -hmm. and how feminist messages, particular versions of them become the most visible, um, and the most, um, circulated. And those are the ones that are about individuals, like, like you said, self-empowerment, um, you know, um, uh, self-love, love love your body, all that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it's about, It's about objectification, but it's also about um, being an individual versus a feminist part of a feminist collectivity.
3: Right. And the irony is we use language that's all about community to sell our singular individual self brand. Let's hear once more from Kelly Deals.
0: So I do think that performing a character even if it comes with material rewards can be fundamentally dehumanizing because it requires that you treat yourself as a resource and a, comm- a commodity so there's like an internal split there that that comes and it also requires being entirely externally focused so leanne raymond wrote two beautiful pieces about the difference between ambition and actual actualization so ambition is when you're totally focused on external rewards so that you're totally overdetermined by trophies prizes praise accolades money you know you are completely whipsawed by that you're, that's what ambition is you collect those those trophies those external rewards Um, But actualization is when you are doing something that you're committed to that comes with its own internal rewards and you're signed up and, you know, led by your internal compass and developing your capacities and talents and gifts and expressing your commitments in your work, that's actualization. So the danger with being, you know, a brand, even if it's creating profit, the danger with performing a character, even if it's creating rewards and respect and affection, is that you are having to internally split yourself and sort of quiet the noise of who you are in order to reap the external rewards. So you're fundamentally othering yourself
3: We're othering ourselves. We're turning our backs on our communities while we invest in our personal liberation and economic empowerment. But it feels inevitable. Who are you in this world if you aren't trying to brand yourself? Who is a person online without a personal brand? I mean, what's the point of authenticity if it doesn't lead to external rewards, if that's how the Internet's been set up?
4: Authenticity is something that, again, I don't I don't, I'm not invested in a definition of authenticity, but I am, I do know that it is a, um, a concept, uh, and, and a practice that, that many, many people are invested in to go back to my students. I think that they think it's inevitable. Like they don't, they will not have be a success if they don't build an online brand. And, um, and you know, I think that 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 we have to push back about uh, against this discourse of inevitability of all of this right that that if it if, if you know that 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 is that is the rich thing about culture is that it is a constantly moving terrain and we make it we do make it you know even as it's made for us right and so to figure out how to make culture in a way that is that, that is Challenges this discourse of inevitability of profit and accumulation of numbers, and um, and you know this kind of emptying out of meaning um, because of circulation of messages, the rapid and relentless circulation of messages on on social and digital media. We can do that. I just think we need to want to do that.
7: We
3: just need to want to do that. But if to sell as human, the corporate workplace is hostile to women, and the internet is giving us the tools to brand ourselves, will we be able to push back against the inevitability of online branding? Well, we're going to discuss the intersections of identity and economics more thoroughly in our next episode. The Your Body, Your Brand podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. Concept photography for the website, social media, and podcast cover art was taken by Risa Scott of R.F. Scott Imagery. To support this independent, ad-free podcast and help us develop a season two, please consider becoming a patron. Patrons who pledge $3 a month or more will get exclusive audio, including cut audio and longer, previously unreleased interviews. Just visit patreon.com bodybrandpod. For show notes and links to the guests who appeared on today's episode, please visit bodybrandpod.com slash listen sell. Please send your stories to me. I am absolutely living for the emails that you've been sending. Um, I've also received several voicemails, which is just the best. So uh, I wanted to play a clip from one of the voicemails I received this week. This week's audio is a clip from Dr. Jenny Talbert. After
12: hearing the introduction and the first few episodes of your podcast, something really clicked with me. So I have been a chiropractor for about nine years. I knew I was gonna be a chiropractor when I was about 14 and just kept going right through, but I always had a feeling that I would need to look a certain way to have my patients listen to me or follow my instructions or things like that. So I actually got a degree in nutritional sciences in undergrad and went straight to chiropractic school, started treating patients, and then got more certifications in functional medicine and other clinical nutrition things and started employing that. at the same time, massively getting into the quote-unquote wellness culture in trying to change my body. Last year, I finally realized that that wasn't working for me. I just had this face that this was me, and people loved it. I had a big following. But I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't. I just wanted to adjust my patients and not answer their questions about nutrition with a lot of help and learning about health at every size and intuitive eating and working with a you know, health at every size dietitian and also a therapist. I was able to really wrap my head around this and start to think about what I wanted to do next. But when you talked about how women sell their bodies to other women, it just blew my mind. That is the feeling, that is the sensation, that is what I've been feeling inside and couldn't put words to because it was felt so wrong but yet everyone does it and and we all were doing it and I just can't anymore and I don't even want to buy anything from other women doing that anymore and I think listening to your podcast really solidified and put words to what I couldn't put words to before so I thank you
3: are you a health coach yoga teacher personal trainer chiropractor or wellness entrepreneur of any kind have you considered becoming one Just like Dr. Talbert's, I'd love to hear your story and potentially share it here on the podcast. You can send me a text email or better yet, record a voice memo and email it to yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and I cannot wait for you to hear next week's episode. We'll see you then.